This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. In this program, we're talking about ecclesiology, how the church is governed, specifically how charismatic churches are governed. It's going to be an exciting program. You guys stay tuned. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. Well, guys, I can hear my audio in a, a tab that I have open, so I'm going to mute this. So, Michael, Michael, if you, you start talking, I'm not going to be able to hear you. I just want to let you know. Uh, I'm very excited about today's program. Uh, we're going to be talking about ecclesiology. That's an interesting topic, but we talk on Wednesdays all things related to the charismatic space. And recently, we've been doing a lot of interviews on the International House of Prayer, I think, uh, Miller and I have done maybe four hours-ish of interviews today, just kind of talking to folks in that space, uh, recording some of these conversations uh, to talk about the things that happened about there. And we thought it would be appropriate during this season where we're doing in, in interviews about this event that took place, this kind of big scandal moment of discipline and how all this kind of unfolded, that it'd be appropriate to talk about how church leadership should function within the local church, since this is a local church matter. So uh, we're going to be diving into a lot of that kind of stuff today. But before we do, before we dive into it, I got to remind you that Remnant Radio is supported with viewers just like you. And the best way that you can support us right now is by hitting that like button, hit the subscribe button, uh, and maybe share this video around if it would be edifying and encouraging to you. Uh, The really, the most important thing you could do is go into the description of this video and subscribe to the newsletter. The newsletter will give you all the updates about conferences and courses and new videos that are coming out, discounts on all of those great things. Really highly uh, advise you to do that because there's nothing but positive effects that you get by giving us your email. We will cherish it and not spam it, we promise. Anyway, without further ado, I want to introduce you to my co-host, Michael. And Michael, you guys excited about today's program? Yeah, man. Anybody I am speak first? very excited. Program. We've talked you, about both, this a lot oh, over the years, I, but it'll be good. a good one today uh, to zero in particularly on charismatic, although we are going to start kind of broad brush stroke church governance beyond just charismatic. And then we're going to go into the different first, second, third wave of the charismatic. If you're not familiar with those terms, we'll define them. Uh, but it touches on church governance. And then kind of where does that leave us today in terms of how specifically charismatic churches are governed? So excited about this show, excited to be on uh, with two of my uh, super close friends. It's always fun to do this. Uh, Miller, you doing all right over there in the no longer basement, uh, wherever you are now in your like, yeah. kind of looking space? <laughs> I'm doing good, dude. Uh, hey, you guys are going to like this. This Saturday, my church has our chili cook-off, our first chili cook-off, and I'm making a brisket chili. So I'll be smoking a brisket all day on what? Friday to incorporate on, into the chili. 
on Saturday. What on earth would make you think that we would be interested in that? You're like, you know, y'all would be really excited about this. Like, what in no, the history you would, of no, our I, relationship makes you I, think, oh, Joshua hey, likes I, chili? I was I was going to extend the invitation. I thought, hey, you know, these guys are both from Texas. They they might like some brisket chili. My what are goodness. you guys doing this weekend? Do you have any plans? <laughs> yeah, let me just fly on up to Denver. Uh, uh, I... I am not a super apostle like Joe Marlin. Uh, just checking in on this interview, a super apostle from New Jersey. <laughs> I, I was at have his my own personal private jet we could have to be to flying in with. If you uh, put Michael it on Rantry. your business card, it's true. Like if you just put <laughs> right. on your business card, no one can argue it. That's so true. Uh, but you know, real quick on the chili cook-off, I did a church chili cook-off like I don't know, probably ten years ago, eight years ago, and. I had some delicious chili, but I, I called it dead is actually deer meat. And I called it like dead Bambi chili or something like that. <laughs> it got no votes. Like no one voted for it. Nobody liked your Wait, chili. Is that, name, that was like your chili. You mattered. made it. Marketing. This mattered. was you. Huh? You made this. Well, okay. Alicia made it and I brought it. <laughs> that checks out. Okay. Let's no longer spend any more time now that we're at the five minute mark. I mean, talking I probably about, stirred the pot about <laughs> dead Bambi. Let's talk about ecle ecclesiology, not to be confused with eschatology, eschatology, study of end times, ecclesiology, the church, the study of the church, what we do in local assemblies, how it's to be governed, how it's to be operated. Lots of strong opinions about uh, ecclesiology. If you're kind of in the Roman Catholic or even high church tradition, what you're really going to make a big deal about is apostolic succession. Did, the, did a guy lay his hand on a guy who laid on his hand on the guy who laid on his hand on the guy who ultimately came from the Apostle Peter down throughout uh, Christian history? Is that what makes you a church? Uh, some people, like Calvin, would say anywhere where the, the gospel is rightly preached and the sacraments are rightly administered, that's where the church is. Um, as Protestants, we kind of lean into that space personally. Uh, but what constitutes a church and how are they to be governed? That's what we're talking about today. Very much excited to do so. If you're in the comment section and you want to ask questions that do not involve Bambi or Chili, uh, please go ahead and dump them in. We will try to address them uh, as they come in. Uh, I've already seen some good questions in here about house churches, things like that, that I'd love to address as we get going. Beans, no beans. No beans. Um, <laughs> cool beans, but no beans. Uh, I think we should dive in. Roundtree, where do you want to start? you want to walk us through Episcopalian, Presbyterian, Congregationalism, and all that fun stuff? Sure. Yeah, and I would say that this issue of church governance is a second-tier issue. Um, so first-tier would be like the Trinity, justification by faith— uh, some of these like uh, defining whether or not you're in or uh, in the Christian faith. Um, but people can disagree about church governance, still be in the Christian faith, but it is going to determine like if you have one view versus another of church governance, which kind of church you're part of. And um, kind of the th like three really big categories would be Episcopalian, uh, Pres Presbyterian and Congregational. And um, there's some subsets of those and even some different ways of classifying, and we could add some other categories too. Um, but starting with Episcopal, and one of you guys can take Presbyterian, but uh, Episcopal is where you, you'll hear the term Archbishop uh, or Bishop. Now, Episcopalian was a denomination, and you know there, the, well, there was that whole split and the LGBTQ thing, and, um, and so... The Episcopalian was really like the branch of Anglican, the Church of England, but the American version. 
but there's an Episcopalian form of governance, uh, which is where the denomination derives its name. And so you would have an archbishop who is over a bunch of bishops that uh, that were within a diocese, so like a region uh, of churches, and uh, and then a bishop, and then that bishop would be over rectors, and the rector. Uh, for those of you in low church evangelical world, that was basically like the pastor. So that's Episcopalian. And, and just a big feature of it is the, the hierarchy uh, of church overseeing churches, overseeing churches, you, you know, archbishop, bishop, etc. And so the, the hierarchy is a big feature of it. Now, there is a hierarchy within Presbyterianism as well, but it's a little bit different and they don't wear as fancy of clothes. So, um, <laughs> what do you guys want to take Presbyterian? Miller, since you're really into fashion, let's have you tackle that one. I do. I don't even <laughs> quite understand it. So I know that there's a local a local church appoints elders. Yeah, okay, Josh, you want to take it? No, I'm just kidding. I mean, I can <laughs> if he doesn't if he doesn't get how it works. I mean, basically it's it's kind of it. like an elder run church in that the elders are localized, but instead of having one bishop over them, there is like a, a synod of elders there as well. So every every court of appeal, if you will, every every chain of command that you go up, you have a group of elders. So there's plurality basically at every level. There's not one bishop overseeing everything. There's no Pope, there's no, you know, uh, or the Archbishop of Canterbury, right? Like you don't. The Anglicans mm-hmm. have their guy at the top of the pole, at the top of the what is it, the totem pole, uh, and and the, the Roman Catholics, the Anglicans, they they have some guy at the top. So does the Eastern Orthodox, the Orientals, that kind of thing. Whereas uh, typically Presbyterianism uh, really has centralized power within plurality at every level. So yes, local church has got local elders that govern the affairs of the church. But if there's an issue that takes place, it goes up to the tier to the next level of elders that oversee a region of churches and so forth and so on. So I think that's, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, And then, and then congregational and within congregational, there are various features and, and even complication as to what we label congregational. Now, what we tend to think of as congregational is something like, uh, maybe like a small church where like everybody gets a vote on all the major issues. That's like pure congregationalism. But there are also, like I said, variations of those uh, common amongst Baptist churches. Uh, Baptist churches, you'll have like a single elder. So instead of, say, like an elder governed church, you would have in a Baptist church a single elder kind of operating in tandem with some deacons that are reporting to him. But then the congregation is also deciding on some important matters. So there's there's a little bit of like a a mixture in that one. Joshua, did you say I articulated that right for our Baptist brothers and sisters? Yeah. So there's committees. There's there's you know in the same way that you have a Presbyterian group where there's a group of elders that govern something, and then there are elders at every stage. The same could be true of many congregational Southern Baptist-like movements where you have a party planning committee. Right. As funny as that sounds uh, for those who watch The Office, um, there's a committee of people who plan whether the committees are valid. Again, that's a, a joke from The Office, but uh, it, you could be like, we're going to change the carpet. We're going to have worship and have committees in charge of every single aspect of church life. Uh, And ultimately, congregationalism tosses the authority over to the congregation, entrusting that the Holy Spirit has discipled and trained the church to make healthy and edified, you know, decisions for mutual edification uh, and building up of the body. So it is really democratization of leadership. Uh, That's typically what I hear when I hear congregationalism. Um, You've got some other versions of congregationalism. I don't I mean, this is just a category thing. I agree with everything me. we're going to talk about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like Grudem and, and, and Jack Deere, like Grudem. they would say. Well, it's what it's what Michael and I were taught. Uh, yeah, the yeah. Morality side of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. so then Jack, 
Jack Deere and and Wayne Grudem. So there's there's some debate, uh, like say with the Nine Marks guys and Mark Dever over how do you categorize um, church governance by a plurality of local church elders, and so what what both sides and really it really just comes down to how you categorize it. Like at the at the end of the That's day, right. they're both saying elder governed. Um, but and so maybe we'll even just start there. Like Acts fourteen twenty three, I preached on this back in. Uh, December, that uh, churches are not to be governed by an individual boss man. They're to be governed by a plurality of elders in every local church, is what it says in Acts 14, 23. Uh, Titus 1, 5, and uh, he's sent into uh, into every town to commission uh, elders. And James 5, 14, you're to call the elders of the church. And so that would even be some of my pushback on our Southern Baptist brothers and sisters where they have the senior pastor as the elder and a deacon board that kind of operates in some sort of eldery fashion. Um, but uh, and, and an argument out here is like, well, you know, yes, it was plurality in the New Testament, but you don't know that it was that way in every church. And, so, and I'm like, well, but every example that we have was plurality. So um, so a plurality of local elders and First Timothy 5.17 says the elders, uh, the elders are to direct the affairs of the church. It doesn't say elder, it says elders. And so, uh, and so there is a co-equal authority amongst the elders in directing the affairs of the church. So, uh, however we, uh, categorize this, whether it falls under congregational or whether it falls outside of congregational, um, both sides are saying it's elder governed. Now, Grudem and Deer, who kind of, uh, you know, back in the day taught Miller and I uh, through Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. Oh, I still he, remember his sermons on this. Jack yeah, he had, he had like a whole bunch of sermons on eldership. Um, what he would say about congreg- what Grudem says in, in his systematic theology about congregational government, uh, the reason he puts it under congregational is uh, is because he makes the point that elders are uh, accountable to the congregation and because church discipline is still administered by the church. And so, for instance, if you look at first Timothy five, 19 to 20, an elder, uh, any elder who, uh, who sins only re- receive the charge if there are two or three witnesses, but if he persists in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so the rest may be warned. Well, that two to three witnesses, uh, that language, uh, harkens back to allude to Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus is telling us how to deal with conflict in the church. Take one brother, then take two to three witnesses, then take it to the church. If they don't listen to the church, then it, then you excommunicate them. So he's referring to that with, with eldership in 1 Timothy 5. Point being, and Grudem tries, makes this point, is elders are accountable to the congregation. And so he says, yes, it's governed by elders, but the elders are accountable to the congregation. Dever, I haven't read him on that spit, like what he says about 1 Timothy 5 sure. and Matthew 18. I bet he would agree with that. I think he would too. But I, I'm confident he would say elders are, are accountable to the congregation because I've never That's heard right. anyone argue otherwise. Um, however, he puts it as a separate category. And I can understand why, because congregational just sounds like what comes to most people's head is something like a democracy. Mm-hmm. And elder government church isn't a democracy, so Dever makes it separate. And I think, like a good case, we're talking about just categories. Honestly. We're talking about categories. That's right. And as far as like biblical, how it fleshes out and where does it belong, I, I, I make makes total sense why Grudem and Jack. I, I don't know that I've ever heard it 
that's the reason why. And once you said this is the reason why, I'm like, okay, that actually makes sense uh, why they would put it under that category because the highest court of appeal is the local church and Mark Dever would agree with that. So it makes sense why you would put that under the congregationalism. And I don't even know if he would say it's not congregationalism. When I say that Mark Dever wouldn't hold that, it's because he's in the Southern Baptist Convention where the culture that he's in, the kind of the water that everyone's swimming in is we vote de- democratically on everything. And so he is opposed, he's saying, elder-run churches in opposition to what he's seeing. I don't know that in a historical context and a historical framework that he would disagree because he's, he's like, it's not Episcopalian. It's not Presbyterian. It's something else. Local church governed by their own, by themselves, um, by their own congregation. You know, the locus of authority li- lies in the church itself. Uh, I think that's mm-hmm. the reason why he fights so passionately for regenerate church membership. So I, I don't think that there may be, there may be no disagreement whatsoever between Grudem and um, uh, Dever on this point, but yeah, you almost have to get them together talking. Yeah, 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 that's right, that's right. Um, Miller, you've you've been checked out for a second. I haven't heard from you. Is there anything you want to add to the, any of these points that have been made do, thus far? Do you have opinions, Miller? I I do have say opinions, words, Miller, but not so much on the say, categories. Say, Miller, do you I, have a I, story I, about healing a foot that you could interject <laughs> right about this point on our charismatic yeah. show? See, that's usually why I'm good on the charismatic side of things. I I will have a lot to add when we start talking about. Uh, certain charismatic structures that don't go so well because yeah. I came from one and uh, I have a lot to say about what can go wrong when, when you have bad structures. And I can talk about our current structure and how we've started. And and so I'll, I'll chime in more later though. That's super good. I, and I, I that's, that's one of those things where we've talked up into this point about kind of the historical church uh, in relationship to the book of Acts to present day. Uh, there are certainly novel forms of governance that we'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, we've mentioned them a couple of times, the the fivefold kind of gnarly-ish uh, governance that we'll talk about maybe a little bit later. Uh, but as it relates to these forms of congregationalism, uh, Presbyterianism, Episcopalianism, as it relates to the first, second, and third wave of the charismatic movement, uh, maybe I should have Michael Roundtree pick up from here um, and kind of walk through the emergence of these forms of el- of leadership in the local church being implemented within the charismatic movement, 1904 to present. Yeah. Okay. So early 20th century, if, if you're not familiar with the, thir- the three waves of the charismatic movement, uh, it starts with Azusa Street early in the 20th century. California, William Seymour, Frank Bartleman, Spirit Falls, people blabbering and uh, incredible things happening, you know, racial harmony, blacks and whites are coming together. Frank Bartleman said the color line was washed away in the blood. And it's just as, you know, it's incredible movement. And of course, not all of our viewers think it was incredible. I I do. And it was, it's kind of viewed as, I mean, it's not totally the origin of Pentecostalism, but it kind of is viewed that way because it was it was when the lighter fluid was dumped on it. And uh, and so that was the first wave of Pentecostalism. And you have denominations that came out of that, like the uh, Assembly of God uh, denomination. And um, and so you have just different uh, different models of governance that flowed out of that is just this first wave. And Josh, I'll probably have you talk about that in a little bit. Second wave is 1960s when this this first wave began infiltrating mainline denominations so you'd have like charismatic anglicans and uh charismatic baptists and uh people 
people getting filled with the Holy Ghost who who weren't supposed to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Uh, so so that was second wave, 1960s, and then kind of into the Jesus movement. It started really spread, and that took us into the third wave. Think John Wimber. And third wave was uh, it it was like it shared the a lot of the theology of your basic conservative evangelicals like. Baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs at the moment of conversion. It's not some second blessing. Tongues is not necessarily like a sign. It, there was a, a sign that you've been filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit. It can be. Um, and so there were some theological nuances there. But the third wave, um, y'all can correct me on this if I'm wrong, but um, it, the third wave tended to be in terms of church governance, a plurality of local local church elders. And in, in from what I can see. In the movement, so those are first, second, and third. Uh, Joshua Miller, if one of you guys wants yeah. to talk about, uh, oh, go ahead, Miller. Miller, Miller, well, weigh in on I'm third wave. Correct, yeah, I'm gonna correct a couple of things there. So the second wave was mostly liturgical. Uh, the evangelicals weren't necessarily experiencing a lot of these things yet. That was a uniquely third wave thing. Is is it went from Pentecostals to liturgical churches, where the the charismatic Catholic fraternity started. Um, John Paul II, Pope, was speaking in tongues. And then third wave hits the evangelicals, which would include the Baptist. But in the third wave, at least within the vineyard, um, actually their ecclesiology wasn't uniform. You have a number of vineyard churches that have very different ecclesiologies, some of them being complementarian, some of them being egalitarian. Uh, and, and there seems to be a big push for, towards egalitarianism today wow. amongst those that are still sort of within the vineyard. Let me um, yeah. Vineyard 2024 and there's Vineyard 1989 and they're very different. That's right. Right. But their ecclesiology wasn't uniform. That's what I'm trying to point out. I see. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, would, I would say the same about the third wave because it depends on who you're talking about when you say third wave. Because Michael and Michael, both of you, I, I don't think I'm wrong when I say this. When you hear a third wave, you think 1984 Vineyard. That's what you think of when you hear third wave. Some people hear see Peter Wagner, New Apostolic Reformation, when they hear third wave. And and since he coined the phrase first, second, and third wave, it makes sense that they would be thinking in terms of um, Peter you know, apostles at the top, getting revelation from prophets, exercising new kind of... We would all here be in opposition to that. But that phrase, third wave, has been co-opted in various ways in different spaces. Be, so I want to be right. uh, careful to be clear. make that distinction. There are some people going to talk about third wave differently than we are. Miller, I see you over there. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, this is actually what we, when we interviewed Carol Wimber. It's on our Patreon. It's not on our uh, our regular broadcast, but you should go check that out. Um, but one of the things that was very clear is this is part of the reason why John and C. Peter Wagner parted ways. C. Peter Wagner was advocating for a, a an ecclesiology built on the uh, resurgence of apostles. And the way he yep. defined it, uh, apostles was vast, uh, vastly different than Wimber did. You know, Wimber would be much like us in the sense that we would believe that apostles are just simply missionaries. They go and play at churches. Whereas C. Peter Wagner saw that as a unique position given by God to tear down principalities in a local area so that revival can come and that they're uniquely gifted to hear from God in a way to, to, to do this. They're bringing heaven to earth. And this is um, today. And again, nobody will don the title NAR, but this would be largely represented by groups like uh, Bethel today where, uh, and I think uh, Bethel's culture of honor and then, uh, Harold Eberly's book on the complete wineskin. Yeah, Cheon. It is a novelty. You won't find it anywhere yeah. in church history. Yeah, Cheon would be another one. Yeah. Uh, well, so here's here, here's 
I want to give you an exact quote of Carol Wimber, okay? Because I asked the question, hey, John, <laughs> yeah. did, you know, see Peter Wagner believe this about apostles and prophets? John seemed to have this everyone gets to play. We're just every man a minister. We're, I'm just a fat man trying to get to heaven. Like the, the kind of ecclesiologies I'm hearing between these two men are very different. And her exact quote, I do believe, you can you can check the records on this. I, I published them on Facebook. Was John hated all that crap, or no? John didn't believe in any of that crap. That's yeah, right. that's her exact that words. I just I, I just was... love that you included John's quote of "I'm just a fat man trying to get to heaven" as like <laughs> under the category of ecclesiology. Well, because it's true. Because <laughs> this he, is what he I believe about all life. of that. And no, he did. Wagner's he, he ecclesiology didn't. created like haves and have nots. It created it created tears. People yeah, we're obviously and, not a fan. Yeah. So, not, but let's let's kind of summarize so our people don't don't get lost. So we talked about Episcopal, Presbyterian, Congregational, and within Congregational, we had kind of like the Southern Baptist expression. We talked some about uh, a local uh, local church plurality of elders, all of whom have equal authority to direct the affairs of the church, which is where all, the three of us stand. Um, and, and so we talked about these, and then. The way the three waves of the Holy Spirit, beginning in Azusa Street with the Pentecostal movement, Josh, you're gonna, you, you were born into that movement, so I want to have you explain that in a little bit. But um, the first wave, Pentecostal, second wave, charismatic, hits the, thank you for correcting me, Miller, liturgical denominations, and then third wave into the evangelical space. And uh, and so we, we talked about these, and then, and then we kind of pivoted where where Wagner and Wimber were together and and sort of at the vanguard of this third wave of the Holy Spirit, but Wagner pivoted and went toward. But yeah, you have governing apostles and prophets who are like basically over elders, which makes us real nervous because you know somebody comes with a revelation from God and they're just like they become the boss man over the elders and scripture's clear elders govern the church and so we we get nervous about that we're going to need to talk about that too so there's like a, a quick summary but I think we need to drill into that first wave Josh could you talk to us about from that first wave before it's infiltrating liturgical dominations before it's infiltrating uh evangelical spaces there are Pentecostal denominations cropping up. Talk to us about the way these denominations have been historically governed uh, coming out of that first wave. Well, I can speak of the Assemblies of God pretty confidently. I think the Church of God, uh, I'm, I, I'm, my, my instinct and everything I've heard has said that they, they're governed essentially the same way and that there's one fundamental difference between the Church of God and the Assemblies of God, and it's under the doctrine of sanctification, that the Church of God has since changed, and now they're basically identical, um, except for their roots being that one started under this idea that, that we only wanted white pastors uh, in our denomination. Uh, unfortunately, history falls to the Assemblies of God on that one. Um, and then the Church of God would be open to all ethnicities of pastors. Uh, again, both sides are in agreement on this issue now, but not at their inception. And that's why we have two separate ones. Uh, but from what I understand, the uh, Assemblies of God uh, is governed similar to a Presbyterian group. Um, on its national level, but not on its local level. So on a local level, there are some Moses models in the Assemblies of God where there's really one guy who's in charge. 
There are other kinds of assemblies of God on the local level that actually kind of function more like a congregationally run church. So on the local level, it seems that there can be adaptations of governance because that local church functions autonomously. Um, but within the re regulations to its larger governing body, the assemblies of, of God, they call it the, uh, the general convention. That is a group of qualified elders, if you will, that are making general decisions of the denomination as a whole. So local churches can have a plurality of opinions and doctrines and teachings. It's not like the 1689 London Baptist or or like another Presbyterian group, the Presbyterians who have the Westminster Confession that really governs all of their doctrine. The Assemblies of God has 16 fundamentals and then a few position papers. But generally speaking, local churches are allowed to agree or disagree on how they're to be governed within their context. Um, it's some of the more overarching decisions that are made by the governing body. And if you get out of line, uh, oftentimes they can't pull your church. They can't like, I'm taking your building back like a Presbyterian denomination often could. Uh, what they can do is revoke your credentials. So if you're a pastor in the Assemblies of God and you kind of step out of line, you begin to deny uh, second blessing, initial physical evidence, maybe the pre-trip rapture. Um, and again, the Assemblies of God is very relational. There are lots of pastors within the movement who actually deny some of those things, and their presbyters just kind of like, don't worry about it, bro. You're a okay. A lot of them back. <laughs> seem to deny. So many right now are just <laughs> no. like trying to keep the movement together. So like many of them aren't really even holding the 16s. Neither here nor there. Um, all that to say that um, the governing body at the whole can pull your credentials, but they can't really take your church. So it is a hybrid model of kind of a congregationally run church and a Presbyterian style of governance. I believe that to be the case of the Church of God. Someone in the comment section can certainly confirm or deny uh, whether I'm right on that. Um, anyway, uh, that, that's that, guys. What, what do you yeah. want to? What do you want to talk about next? Do you want to well, talk about some of the particulars of how they make? these theological assessments of congregationalism, how they make these theological assessments of what is an elder-run church, like what does the Bible say about these issues and how they make those biblical arguments for these modes of government? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure. Um, and, and we might not go through all of them, but we'll, we'll kind of hit some of the highlights, maybe congregationalism. Uh, so when one is arguing for a congregational governance, they're going to look at passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, where the entire church is involved in discipline. The same thing in Matthew chapter 18, I already quoted, if they won't listen to them, tell it to the church. And if you won't listen to the church, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Um, they're, they're going to look at when it comes to, say, appointments for um, offices, Acts chapter six, typically understood as appointment of deacons, even though it doesn't use the word deacons. Uh, but it says, uh, and the 12 summoned the full number of disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So it's, it's almost like nominated by the congregation, approved and appointed by in this case, the apostles and and most commentators see that as prototypical of uh, deacon appointments, and a lot of churches will operate with eldership the same way, nominated by the congregation, uh, and then um, and then maybe appointed or approved by by elders. And that that even that's kind of like a mix of congregational and and elder run, which is back to that debate For we had earlier. For the sake of time, can I just run through maybe these other three on congregationalism without reading the verses verbatim and just kind of sure. getting the overview? Matthew 18, sure. go to a brother. Uh, if they don't receive you, bring someone else with you. And then 
give it to the church, have the church vote on that, Matthew 18, 15 through 17. I say vote, I interjected that word, but it seems as if the church itself is the final court of appeal for discipline, not necessarily elders. It's supposed to be brought before them. Um, Acts 6, 2 through 4, there seems to be a democratic election of deacons. Roundtree mentioned that briefly. Uh, mark and avoid false teachers, according to Romans 16, 17. You're to mark false teachers, those who are, you know, create quarrels and, and false doctrines, those kinds of things. He gives that command not to church elders, but to the church universal. In fact, if you read um, 1 Corinthians, if you read uh, Romans, if you read Galatians, these aren't letters written to the elders. It's letters written to the churches. Why are you putting up with false doctrine? You know, why are there divisions among you? Why is there someone sexually immoral in your midst? First Corinthians, uh, for, yeah, first Corinthians, uh, first, Corinthians, first Corinthians five, right? Deliver this person over to Satan. He's like, purge the evil from among you. These are instructions given to the church. Miller. Well, I just think that's an important point in any church model is what you just mentioned there about the fact that these letters were written to entire churches. I hear people oftentimes pass the buck of responsibility on to others when they say things like, well, what am I supposed to do? I'm just a member. And I'm always mm -hmm. like, what are you supposed to do? You're just a member. Do you know what being a member means? You know, you're seated in Christ in heavenly places. Members have authority over the demonic. That's right. Uh, members have a voice that they're supposed to exercise and use. And actually, to stay silent is a failure. It's sin. Yeah. And so, yeah. And my church, just a member means a whole lot. In my church, we have three offices: we have elder, deacon, and church member. And, and I consider church member an office in maybe opposition to church history, uh, because just like an elder and a deacon, there are qualifications and disqualifications. There's things that you have to do to be admitted and things that you can do that get you omitted. Uh, the same can be said of church membership. And there's right. a responsibility in membership in like, in like manner that there is for deacons and elders. So I consider it an office in the church. That is not a historical position. I want to be honest with that for people. Uh, but I, I'm with Miller on this. There is real responsibility. There are real qualifications. There are real duties that church members need to have in the local church and they need to be empowered. Um, they need to know that they have this power in the congregation. I think it's well, very important. Whether they're, whether they're empowered by the leaders or not, they have power by, by nature of who they are in Christ. And so whether or not your leaders have told you that or not, that, that could be a failure or an area of negligence on their part. But either way, the scriptures tell you who you are yes. as a member in the body of Christ. And that and, means you have authority. And, you know, Dawson made a really good point about how each of these systems can be hijacked. You know, he mentioned that in the comment section just now. We do not believe that any system of eldership, whether it be senior church pastor, like it's kind of a Moses model, whether it's an elder run church, a congregational run church, an Episcopal church or a presbyter, like, like no matter what kind of governance it is, sin is pervasive. It is wicked. It affects our hearts. If you've been in abusive situation, you can have sin and abuse in every system. Our aim Absolutely. is to try to be obedient to what the Bible says. Like, what is the Bible telling us to do when we're governing our churches and just trusting that Jesus is right, that he's saying this kind of governance will bring the mass glory and honor to my name. Uh, and yeah, maybe there's a system that has, uh, you know, I would consider it a right. dictator and even be a benevolent dictator, a senior pastor, a Moses model. That's like, I'm in charge. I have all authority unilaterally. Even that system that I think the Bible like wholeheartedly rejects, even that system I have seen in place with godly men with good character bring honor and glory to God's name. Like, I think that it right. has lots of faults although, and potential for error, but yeah. I've seen it work although, well. That what you, and what you described is the Moses model. Moses goes up on the mountain, gets the revelation from God and tells all the people, here's what we're going to do. And it's, it's the one man show leadership, which is not a New Testament model. 
And, um, and what I would say is there can be an occasion where, like you said, Josh, somebody will, will be the benevolent dictator and it goes well. What happens though is his successor, it usually doesn't go well. And so, uh, it, and so what I would say, I agree with you, Josh, there can, there can be sin pervasive across church governance structures. Absolutely. There are probably some that are more prone to it. I think the Moses model is one of those, but to your point, it can go across all. And, and I would, and so sorry, I, I like, like we're all on the same page of elder governed, no Moses model. I think that's one big safeguard. And I think the other safeguard is there are some congregational elements and congregational accountability. This is why I like Grudem's and Deere's articulation of it built in that I think provides an extra safeguard. It doesn't mean that the congregation is the boss of the elders or something like that. No, the elders direct the affairs of the church, but a, a, some form of kind of interplay of, of how that interacts and, and where, where accountability plays out. Yeah, I, I was going to say that, that when it comes to the Moses model, um, there's I know there's a lot of strong arguments to be made around having a centralized leader for people to follow, that they're sort of setting a vision and it allows people to rally behind that vision. I, I get the benefits of that. I also think it is the reason why we have narcissism that's rampant in the church today. Uh, or not the reason. It's a major contributor because it's a, it's a narcissist enabling system. And to be very clear, when we talk about NAR, uh, NAR is just another form of the Moses model because you always have the apostle at the top. It, it ends up uh, ultimately being Good the point. same thing where it's a narcissist enabling system. And, you know, I, I'll take it a step further. This can be hard for people to hear, but I actually think that's what happened at IHOP. I think what you had was a person at the top who had elders, but the elders never really knew where the buck stopped with them because it really was they were all chosen by Mike Bickle at the top. And so, and there seemed to be a divide between those elders and those who were on the grounds at, uh, as staff. And so I, I saw this at my old church. They actually adopted, they went straight from NAR to the IHOP model. And I think it has the same uh, issues in the sense that these elders have sort of this nebulous authority, but they don't really know what decisions they get to make. And then you've got these deacons who are sort of ministry leaders or staff. Uh, but again, you don't really know. And, and they're kind of separated from those elders. And you've got this one person in between that's really dictating everything and siloing off people. And what that allows that person to do, and the reason why I think it's a narcissist enabling system, is it allows them to, to control the flow of information. And um, the moment you, con you control the narrative, the moment you control the flow of information, you actually have absolute control. Yeah. Well, let's yeah. let's talk through well, some of this for a second because we talked about congregationalism just a moment ago. I want to I'm going to skip elder run churches. Anyone who watches the show knows that's that's where we we hang out. So I want to maybe leave that for the end. Maybe um, this one here, the Moses model. We've been talking about it, so it seems right to talk about it right now. The Moses model doesn't have a explicit text of scripture as much as it does a meta narrative. I would say it was popularized probably by Chuck Smith. 
Um, also, this Michigan shirt, guys, I have no dog in the fight, okay? My wife is from Michigan, so everyone in the comment section who's like, oh, Jonathan's from Texas, I don't, I don't care. It's just a comfortable sweatshirt, and it got cold, so I'm wearing it. Um, so let's talk through <laughs> the Moses model. Uh, so Moses was in charge. He went up the mountain, heard from God. There were other leaders who had the power of the Spirit on them, right? Like Aaron and Miriam and other prophets. But when they came to question Moses' authority and leadership, the, the judgment of God came down upon them, right? So it was clear Moses was the guy. Anyone else who technically the spirit was on pawn in helping in the leadership of that community, if they were to come against the man of power for the hour, as it were, if it come against Moses, is to come against God himself. Um, the judges, pretty similar to that, in that the judges were these kind of unique leaders in Israel who had unilateral authority and power and, and empowerment by God to lead God's people. The kings are another great example. Now, were there prophets and priests who led Israel? Certainly. But the the final, like the, the puck stopped with the king, right? So like the prophet could come and tell the king like, hey, uh, or the buck, the, not the puck, the buck. It's, stopped it's the, the buck. Yeah, the I was going to make fun of you, but you were talking too and, fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I, I caught myself. I'll make I'll make fun of myself. So, you know, the, the prophet could go and tell David, hey, buddy, you can't do this. And, and David could go, whatever, dude, you know, like I'm in charge. And at the end of the day, David was the one who's going to be judged for it because David was the one in charge. So Moses, the judges, the kings, even Jesus himself, right? Like he didn't lead, hey, 12 apostles, like what do you think we should do? <laughs> like Jesus was a kind of Moses model of leadership. He was in charge and anyone who said anything against him was saying it against God himself. Now, people will say that they can see this pattern in the Old Testament will then say, well, you know, guys like Peter in the New Testament kind of stood up, um, up amongst the 12 and they're, they're mentioned before Peter, James, and John, the first mentioned of the disciples. So therefore, there's room to believing in this kind of senior model of leadership, uh, the Moses model. Uh, I think generally we would say that that is not the case because the kings, the prophets, the judges are prototypes of Jesus who is to come. They're foreshadowings of Jesus who is to come. We would say the Holy Spirit came on select individuals in the Old Testament, but now there's a democratization um, amongst God's people. Um, and, and, and that there are biblical prescription, right, for elders and uh, accountability amongst leadership. So we would just say that this Moses model is, I mean, I would say it's unbiblical. I think I, I'm not a fan of it. Um, well, it's, it's biblical that. in the sense that it was that for a nation. Sure. And even in that nation, they had Different eldership scenario. structures. Yeah. It wasn't Moses as the only guy. There was a reason why he put the spirit on 70 elders. Mm -hmm. and these elders were in different cities. So uh, actually, uh, we were mentioning Matthew 18 or, or the Acts chapter making reference to Matthew 18. I actually think it's making reference to Deuteronomy where it talks about the eldership structure and how you bring in accusation against another. But it's neither here nor there. Uh, the fact is that that power was dispersed amongst Israel. I and when we talk Moses' that. model, uh, we talk, well, I, I don't know if I, I don't have my notes on me about that, but perhaps I can bring it up later or put yeah. it in the show notes. Sure. But, uh, my, my point was to say that when it comes to the Moses model and it being biblical, it is biblical for a nation. It's not biblical for a church. It's not a church model. That is a model that's based off of the Old Testament nation of Israel. Uh, and that's right. why it's problematic. Uh, you had prophet leaders and you had king leaders and elder leaders and judges well, who functioned as judges. And then you had priests. Right. And so there was like right. four positions of authority in Israel. So the thing that it gets right is that it does affirm God tends to move through leaders. He raises up leaders that are influential. That's a good thing. 
But when you apply that to church governance and it's a Moses model, which Chuck Smith argued for, and I saw somebody talking about this in the chat, Chuck Smith had been under a previous system that didn't allow him enough freedom. So he insisted I get control and, you know, went with this Moses model a lot. and, and ran and that. Yeah. And so we, we would all say on the show that that is bad, but we think that you do have while, while allowing for, Hey, God raises up leaders. You have to say that the elders together as a plurality have co-equal authority for governing the church. So uh, no to the Moses model, real common in charismatic circles, certainly like the Calvary Chapel movement, which is kind of charismatic light, but it'll also happen in the charismatic movement where the man of power for the hour rises up and and he's the healing evangelist or he's the this or the that, and, and he's looked to like a Moses figure. And, um, and so maybe it would be a good time though to talk about the fivefold and yeah. uh, because this is a big push and miller you mentioned bethel earlier they pushed that a lot in the culture of honor and hey here at render radio we love the apostle how god gave through jesus apostles prophets evangelists pastors and teachers we think that's wonderful but when you read the text it does not mention church governance when no. you read the the pastoral epistles, which are all about church governance, uh, or a lot, what you see is elders, 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 elders. You see Paul saying to the church in Philippi, to the elders and deacons of Philippi, the two church offices, uh, you, you do not see apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers uh, in Ephesians chapter 4 presented as governing offices. In fact, in verse 7 of Ephesians 4, it uses the word gifts. And so, um, and so what I would say is that God raises up people who are apostles, people who are prophets, people who are evangelists, people who are pastors and teachers. They may be in your church. They, they may not have a necessarily governing authoritative role. You say, yeah, but what about the apostle? Oh my gosh. I like spit just now. Okay. Uh, <laughs> You're getting real Pentecostal uh, now. <laughs> I'm like, I'm looking at my computer screen. I'm like, smudgy, smudgy. If okay. you can say apostle so, and not spit a little bit, you're probably not pronouncing it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so apostles and what we would say here at Remnant Radio, you have to differentiate between uh, big A apostle, if you will, and little A apostle. So big A apostle, that would be the original 12 uh, and uh, the ones that were discipled by Jesus. And of course, Judas had his replacement in Matthias. But these 12 have their names written on the foundation stones of the New Jerusalem, uh, just as the 12 tribes of Israel are written on the 12 gates of the New Jerusalem. So th this, is, uh, this is enshrined in eternal history, the place that these special figures had. And they definitely did have a certain kind of authority. And you might be able to extend that to, say, like the Apostle Paul is sort of like this abnormal apostle like the 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 13th one to grow on kind of apostle for first corinthians 15 he says as one untimely born but um but then there are little a apostles second corinthians 8 23 uh most of our translations will render it not apostles but messengers but it's the same greek word for apostles and this is just basically more like missionaries and that's how that's how we would understand apostles and there are examples of that throughout the new testament i mean apostle just means sent one and so you're sending out missionaries, you're sending out church planters, and so on. Uh, these people are more apostolics. I mean, they have governance over the elders. We get real nervous about a single individual who's the boss man over elders, because that's not what we see in the New Testament model, unless you could make a case for a special scenario 
with the 12 apostles who did have more of a governmental authoritative role but, uh, and, and maybe Paul, but that is different from how apostles are also talked about in the Bible in a more missionary sense. Uh, you guys poke holes in what I'm saying. I'm, I'm not going to poke holes as much as I am going to talk about the novelty that is the, the new apostolic reformation and its ecclesiology. Uh, I, I want to show where they're getting this from, the, the, where the ideas are coming from, because they're actually not coming from Scripture. So, And you'll hear this from, from Chris Vallotton. You'll hear this from Lance Wallnell, a number of other popular teachers today in the charismatic uh, new apostolic era, you know, kind of world. Um, they'll say that the word apostle is, comes from the uh, name of the Greek envoy ship and or I guess Roman envoy ship, that it was apostolos sent to bring in Roman culture so that every road would look like Rome. Um, and Which is so not with true. Them, they would take Dr. In, Craig Keener, yeah, I know. that's not a thing. I know, I know. Yeah. Uh, well, and the, the problem is that Chris and none of these guys, they ever they, they always fail to cite where they're getting this information from. But let's just say that even if it was true, uh, Jesus borrowed the term from Roman culture. That is true. But did he borrow it from this idea that an, that an apostle was sent by the Roman Empire to go and make whatever conquered territory look like Rome? Is Jesus's intent for the one who is going to be an apostle of Jesus? No. Uh, what they're going to do is they're going to go and plant churches. So, and and this idea that God's got some special, unique vision from heaven to bring to that part of the earth is also not found in scripture. That's a an invention. But the the other thing that I would say, and what's really popularized this idea, is that because in American Western history. Uh, we saw a resurgence of the prophetic movement in the, uh, well, we saw the evangelists of the latter rain movement that were evangelizing and seeing mass healings. Then we saw this prophetic renewal take place in the uh, late eighties with IHOP, which we now question sincerely uh, that whole narrative of the prophetic history, which is why we don't have it on our uh, podcast anymore. Um, but because of that renewal of the prophetic ministry, it led guys like Rick Joyner, uh, and again, Chris Vallotton and um, C. Peter Wagner, as well as Cheon and others to say, well, since God restored the prophetic, now in these last days, he is restoring the apostolic ministry. I would just say that all of these ideas are novelties. Uh, it's not based on scripture. It's based on their observations. And the fact is their observations aren't history. Their observations are really just a 20th century uh observation, they failed to recognize that there's always been apostles planting churches. There's always been people who were prophesying. Uh, I think was it Claire, uh, Bernard of Clairvaux was well known as a, a prophet. We've got all the guys from the Presbyterian Reformation that were prophets like George Wishart and John Knox. Um, so the prophetic Peden. ministry didn't suddenly reappear in the 1980s like these guys would have you believe. It's always been around. Uh, and same thing is true of the apostolic ministry. Yeah. Sorry, I, I got on a little bit of a tangent. No, that's there, but great. I, wanna, I want people to know where this is coming from. No, I think that's good too. I, I want to kind of engage with a couple of comments online here that I thought just super fruitful. Uh, Benjamin, right, said, any model lacking robust accountability and transparency is dangerous in my opinion. Man, I think that's really why we're appealing to elder models and, and we'll kind of dive into that. This is one that I think we can't overlook. Dawson is saying, I find it interesting that Paul did not give uh, much space informing us of church government as much as informing us uh, 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 of being the right kind of person 
to govern a church. So it's not so much about the particulars of how issues are dealt with as much as it is the kind of people who should be leading. Uh, and he made this statement as well. Character is everything. Seeking out the man of peace who walks in weakness is necessary today. And that's that's really where I think, I can't stress this enough, uh, as much as governance is important, I have to communicate this to our audience we cannot build a utopia through structure that requires no submission to Jesus. If you just get the theology just per- if you get the if you get the organization just right, like you can you can develop a perfect system uh, that's going to like usher in. And I'll tell you, I had some I'll call it idolatry around fivefold ministry stuff. I was so convinced if we had apostles and prophets and teachers and and, and pastors and, and shepherds, we could just I, I would I would literally go into churches and say read Ephesians four. And, um, well, I would not have them do that. I'd say, name, name everything you can think of wrong with the church. Oh, we don't love each other. We don't walk in unity. Uh, we're, we're, we're theologically shallow. And then I'd have them write it all on a whiteboard. And then I would say, now let's read Ephesians 4. And we'd walk through it. Look, all of the problems you were mentioned are solved. If we just have these five guys leading the church, I was so convinced of it. Uh, but what it what it did was it, it showed me that I was so quick to believe that the model and the system is what matters, but like the internal formation, the spiritual development and integrity of men who lead God's people, like that's what God is after. Um, You're hitting the nail on the head there, Josh. So so I just want to say there are congregational models that will function eternally better than elder models or or senior pastor models that will function eternally better than elder run models, right? Um, If their integrity is better. If the senior pastor model's integrity is better than a plurality of elders, there can be abuse take place in plurality. There can be abuse in the senior pastor. It's really God is going after character. And I think I think that's really important to highlight. Um, go ahead, Miller. Oh, I, I was going to, I don't know where we want to go next. I'd love I was to just going to say, say more things about me being right. I have a story no, I could tell that. on that. I, could, I have a story <laughs> I could tell on that. Because um, what you're talking about, you're talking about structure of governance where we've been saying the whole show, it matters, it matters, it matters, it matters. And we think this one's best. And at the same time, we're like, but we don't want to so emphasize that we say character doesn't matter. Like that matters, it matters, it matters. Right. Mm-hmm. So like we're, it matters we, we are saying they, they both matter. Um, it, but we can't be so passionate about this, that we lose that. Um, so at my first church that I passed, I was there for 17 years at Wellspring. So, um, it was like, um, so Jack Deere, spiritual father to me and Miller, we got the best of Jack Deere in those seven years that he was the senior pastor before I became the senior pastor at that church where I was for 10 years as the senior pastor. Um, but it was really, really hard too. And if you guys have read Jack's book, the Even in Our Darkness, um, where he's talking about, you know, he lost his son, his wife went into a tailspin. And, uh, and she gave herself, oh, I mean, she just got lost in, uh, alcohol abuse and, and it was just read the book. It was horrific and being intimately closely related to that. It, it was like daily devastations. And, um, and so Jack, he's the one who like taught us all about eldership, all of this. He had like a whole sermon series. that was phenomenal on church governance and walked us through the pastoral epistles, our whole church and all of this. And, uh, and, and we had some elders, but, but Jack's life was so kind of, there, there was so much craziness going on that like, honestly, they were kind of elders in name only. And, um, and so it was during that time as I was like in my twenties and, and had just this really hard conversation with Jack. I said, Jack, 
I love you. You're great, but biblically and practically, I think you're doing a better job than I ever would or anybody else. But I don't, I don't think that biblically or practically you can, you can pastor in this scenario. And, and so I kind of gave some options that seemed like livable options. And he said, you might be right. And here's what I want to say that, um, it marked humility. I mean, this, this man had been broken down for these years and, and he was trying to pull it all together. And then when I, when I said that he humbled himself and he just said, you might be right. And, and what I said to him is, I said, the elders that we have are elders in name only. Like we never meet. And I know you believe in elders, but you're just kind of, you're, you're too occupied. I was like, we've got to pull them in. And Jack and I were in some big conflict at that point um, because I was concerned about the church and, uh, and not that he was, he was totally concerned about the church too, but he just, the, well, he had a lot the, of competing the, concerns at the time. It was, yeah. it was a, a tumultuous and honestly, time in that, in that church. Yeah. And, and I was in my twenties. I was, if I was more mature, I, I might've said, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I did say stuff, but like I, I had a real big, hard conversation and, and, and that was it. And I gave a, a couple of livable options. None of them involved him continuing as a senior pastor. I mean, it's a hard conversation to have with your spiritual dad. And, um, he said, you might be right. He humbled himself, but we also had a lot of conflict to work through. And, and we pulled in those other two elders and, and through like eight months of insanely painful conversations, Jack humbled himself. I humbled myself and we walked through it. And then somewhere in there, he said, Michael, I, I think it's time for you to, uh, to lead the church. And he stepped down and he retired. And, uh, and so like that was formative in me and the, value of both of those together on one side you got to have the character to humble yourself to say i'm not always right um you also have to have a governance structure where people aren't elders in name only they actually have an equal authority to come in and to speak into crazy challenging situations i remember preaching during that season with just a broken heart it was like the hardest thing ever and uh but then we came out of that in the church that was about to sink we couldn't pay everybody's salaries um became an extremely healthy church and uh and so i just see both of those coming together governance governance and uh, and, and miller and character miller you were there for that i mean i was there telling for the stories first, you remember it i was there for 80 percent of that uh, i had left before you started having those really hard conversations with jack but I think Jack, he acknowledges this in his book. He wasn't in a place that was healthy enough to run a church, and yet he was doing it. And it makes sense. And Jack's, again, it, sometimes it took him a while to acknowledge it, but he always acknowledged it. Eventually, he was like, yeah, this wasn't good. This wasn't healthy. Um, and so that's what I remember. And subsequently, conversations we've had about that. And while the church may not have had the best of Jack Deere, he sure as heck gave you and I the best of him. Like he he spent a ton of time pouring into us and developing us as leaders. Um, I do want to talk about the plurality model a little bit at my own church, just as a as an example of what I think is how we're going to pursue health. Um, you know, and this is what I've I've gotten from the elder oversight of the church that planted me out of Aspen. They are a uh, a true plurality of elders. They they have what they call the first among equals, where you know if there's if there's a uh, disagreement, then there's one person who can step in and kind of have the trump card. I'm not personally adopting the first among equals at my church, 
Um, but when it comes to the decisions of what elders decide on, we don't decide where people can and cannot work, who they can and cannot marry. So when it comes to the kind of authority that we tend to exercise, it's authorities uh, over matters of church discipline, matters of church doctrine, uh, direction of the church, which really means, um, when people say direction, it doesn't mean some unique vision, right? We've already got the vision from God, go make disciples of all nations. Uh, but when it comes to how we prioritize our resources, whether we're going to use money to hire staff, whether, whether we're going to create a team for benevolence to take care of the poor amongst us, uh, or to help somebody out with a rent. Um, so that, that's kind of what we mean by direction, how we prioritize the resources of our church. So again, church discipline, church doctrine, uh, the direction of the church and the discipleship of the church. We call them the four D's in our church. Um, and so on those issues, specifically when it comes to matters of church doctrine, matters of church discipline, uh, and direction of the church when it comes to big financial decisions, we don't do a majority vote. It's always unanimous uh, for the sake of not violating anyone of our conscience. And so we've had this sort of uh, spelled out in our, it's easy to do when you have a small church with only three elders, which is where we're at right now. And, and church discipline uh, is a unanimous issue in your church too, right? Like if someone's yes. being put under discipline, that has to be unanimous as well. It absolutely does. Yeah. For our church, that's how we're doing things. And and again, that's that's not a model. That's some new thing that I created. That's what my oversight church has done as well. And so what it does is it, it, it gives that kind of unanimous thing uh, so that all of us can be on the same page about the most uh, serious of matters that would take place in our community, issues of uh, uh, the distinctive doctrines of, our, doctrines of our church, as well as the disciplining of the members of our church. Uh, I love so much Dawson's comments today. Uh, he said, did Miller just alliterate? Like, I, I, just to be clear, all these D words, it's so great. That, that uh, wasn't me. That was my that oversight was church. Oversight I borrowed church. it I directly you, from them. Steve yeah. Steve is brilliant. And I think that I can see that coming from him. So um, I'm not saying that Miller's not. That seemed like a jab and a compliment at the same time. I'm sorry. Miller. <laughs> Both are true. It's fine. I, I'll so take a complimentary I'll take a jab. <laughs> Steve. So there are different ways uh, elder-run churches are governed. And we didn't get through all like the Bible verses Acts 16.4, elders made decisions on doctrine. Uh, Acts 20.28, 20, Paul leaves Ephesus and tells them, hey, I need you to oversee the flock of God um, because wolves are coming in and you got to protect people. So there's like a protection element of doctrine and overseeing of doctrine that's there. Uh, elders lead the church in training. You see this in 1 Timothy 5.17-19. They also display how to practice spiritual gifts, James 5.14, the laying on of hands of the elders praying for the sick. So there is a leadership role in the Bible that we would say this is important for us. So much so that the organization that the three of us kind of help oversee, not this one, another one called the Convergence Church Network, CCN, requires a plurality view of eldership. And there are different ways that this can be functioned in the same way that Miller said his oversight church has a first, his local church doesn't. There are some that do majority view and there are other elder boards that do un unanimous uh, decisions. So uh, I know of a church in California that's a Bible church that will make no decision uh, at all in leadership of any capacity unless all elders are on exactly the same page in complete unanimity. Un unanimity. It's a hard word for me to say. I feel like, you know, Nemo, when it's like, and in an um, uh, talking, anyway, so, uh, <laughs> some of you know what I'm talking about. I'm not you have explain. kids, obviously. Yeah, I have kids. So, uh, uh, so there's the majority position, you know, the eyes have it. There's a unanimity position. Everyone agrees on things. And there's sometimes the tiebreaker uh, that kind of hangs out in the middle. So 
Different ways that first among equals can, uh, first among equals, different ways that elder run churches can be uh, organized. But for us, um, the hope is that character is the thing that matters the most. But even when it comes to church leadership, we want some kind of court of appeal. If you're a congregant and you're in a charismatic church and there's a prophetic word that's given over you and they're like, this is the word of the Lord or over the church, it needs to be able to go to someone. And, it, and if that doesn't make change, there needs to be some kind of court of appeal. There needs to be some kind of, uh, if there's some kind of abuse situation taking place. And we just see that plurality of elders seems to be the most conducive to addressing that situation as we can make sense of it. So uh, anyway, I'll, that, that's, I'll that's my, yeah, my church isn't quite elder run yet. I, I'll add a couple You're things toward on it. here. I mean, it's all planted churches, because you guys are both church plants still, sure. really. And Paul yeah. planted churches, and then he circled back, and he appointed elders at a later date. So you're talking, you're kind of in that embryonic, not you're beyond embryonic. No, um, embryonic, right? You're, That's you're okay. in the early stage. You're you're developing elders. Both of you guys yeah, have Josh mentioned is... first. Yeah, both of you guys have mentioned first among equals. It's rooted in a Latin phrase that goes back to the very beginning. Justin, uh, Justin Martyr talked about uh, this in the in the second century, and and. I, I would say like, I mean, there are different understandings even of that, but usually what it means is, uh, and, and Sam Storms taught on this from a book he wrote the foreword for called The Plurality Principle. Um, and usually what it means is it equals means equal authority. And that first is trying to, to articulate what does it mean to have a board of equal authority individuals where uh, where you also have a senior pastor or a lead pastor, whatever phrase you like to use, like how does that person operate? If, I mean, if you're calling him the lead, if you're calling him the senior pastor, in, in what sense is he the lead or the senior, but he's also has the exact same authority. And so it, what the, the typical sort of analogy that I've read or heard is that everybody's walking shoulder to shoulder. Um, and, and so that represents equal authority. But when it comes to sort of vision direction of the church, there's sort of like this peripheral glance that it would maybe originate usually from the lead pastor. Doesn't mean he's more important, doesn't mean he's more authoritative, doesn't mean he's more like closer to God. It just means that um, typically that comes from him, but he still doesn't have the final authority of deciding on that. It just usually starts there. He brings it to the team. They run it around. They refine it or whatever. And so like Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost or, or James stands up amongst the brothers, like the kind of, the kind of language of someone standing up and kind of presenting that there's a leader role amongst the leaders so that things get accomplished. Is that right? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. I, I would and, say that my church, again, wanting to submit to that kind of character principle, but also trying to submit to some kind of check and balance, we function as a congregational church until we can have elders established. So in the process of doing that, and I think that when you see what the ideal is in scripture, and I do believe there is an ideal that I see in scripture, uh, and, and then just our attempts to function, what is accountability? What does character look like? And then trying to this is where I'm at. This is where we need to be. And then slowly move in that process. I and mean, that's where we're at. And we hope that every church gets to the same place. Guys, you guys ready to wrap? Is there anything that y'all want to well, say? Thoughts, concerns, love letters, death threats? I imagine else? there's got to be some questions about this as well when it comes to being a, a charismatic that's wanting to shoot for plurality of eldership. 
couple of things that I would just add to when it comes to choosing elders. Um, obviously, I want the character to be the primary. Um, I also yep. want to make sure that these people are actual leaders, that they they spend time with the community, that the people... When, if I'm going to ask uh, um, my community to submit to this new elder, whoever this may be, and to follow them, then there has to be buy-in from the community, which means this person is already leading in some capacity. The, the church already trusts them. The members look to them for counsel and wisdom. Um, and so they, they've got to be actual pastors. They can't just be successful in business. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is, since the church is looking to them and we are a, a charismatic community, I want these people to know what their gifts are and to mm-hmm. be able to use their gifts in a productive manner to the church, because that's normative for everybody in my church to uh, discover their gift, use their gift as a good steward of the manifold grace of God. So let me say this again, like they, they need to be leaders. They know how to build teams and they know how to use their gift as an act of service. They display the character uh, and they are actual pastors. They, they elder, they, they oversee sheep. Uh, if they're not doing that, they're probably not called yeah, to that. Well, that, and that was part of like in Jack's teachings on elders, what he would emphasize over and over is, uh, that elders are not just policy makers, they're shepherds. Right. And, um, and so, you know, Jack just in his church experience had come across like where the, the elders were kind of like just a council. And uh, usually of, he, he talked about it as a council of successful businessmen who told the pastor what to do, you know. And you gave and, them authority so they keep writing checks and donating to the church. That's right. <laughs> and so it became a political game of like, well, they're the richest guys, so I can't get, you know. And so uh, there was a big emphasis on shepherding. And um, and that, that word shepherding in Acts chapter 20, First uh, Peter 5, it's, it's used to describe the work of an elder. So... Uh, you know, I like, I like to say whether it's an elder or a pastor, uh, we should smell sheepy. We should be in and amongst the sheep. We should be, uh, to use a, another Pauline phrase, wash the feet of the saints. And, uh, and so those are all kind of like the outward expressions of that character that you're, uh, that you're talking about. But the, but the main thing is it's not just like a, it's not just like a board, like what you have in a business, you know, it's, uh, it's shepherds who are amongst the mm-hmm. sheep, um, <sighs> Uh, sharing authority with one another, but First uh, Peter five, using that in a in a humble and gentle and loving way to serve the flock, uh, to which, along with being accountable to God, they're accountable to the flock too. So, uh, those those are all I, I I would say a couple of takeaways. The other one is you had mentioned um, just like a tiny little thing. I know we're doing a whole deal on IHOP. I guess it's next week maybe, but um, you know, what, what I would say that I think is important on the IHOP thing that it was just weird. Cause you guys were talking about like elders and the IHOP structure. He, yeah. They technically he, had them, but not in reality. Yeah. Well, technically. So here, here's what I didn't love. Um, and in fact, we, I remember filming with them and talking about it and just like, that seems dangerous. Oh, I didn't, but I, I was not sure I wanted to air the, the video. Remember with Isaac? I was like, I don't want people to know this ecclesiology. It does not sound good. Well, but then because the it hard drive crashed too. So it, it was basically like you had all these, like this executive team, executive leadership team or whatever with all these people. And, um, and that actually, if I remember right, Josh, so correct me if I'm wrong, had authority over the elders of Forerunner Church. And so yeah. it seemed like Forerunner Church, at least in some way, even though the like at least one of the elders had a voice on the executive leadership team. 
it seemed like the church was subservient to the prayer mission. And uh, man, that's, it's novel for sure. And it, and it seems like it would have a propensity to submit like the, the basic runnings of like what church is all about to, to parachurch and a parachurch ministry is necessarily like, unlike a church that has like all these different purposes and where to serve the poor and where to love the sheep and where to train and equip and do all these, like a church has all these purposes. Um, and a parachurch would be like, our purpose is prayer. Our purpose is the great commission. Our purpose is, uh, is whatever this thing is. And, and like God uses parachurch ministries, I believe to achieve that laser beam focus but if you have a parachurch overseeing a church, it, it could really tilt it in a one-sided dimension. And I remember talking about that. So, well, yeah, so it did. I, if you talk to the people there, they would say that yeah. they felt like cogs in a system, that there were a lot of uh, there was a lot of negligence when it came to actually pastoring people, helping them with their marriages, um, that everything was about keeping that fire burning. And this was the same issue I saw at my old church, which I do think was abusive. And people, when they leave, they feel discarded. They felt used. They felt like they were just cogs. And that's the nature of when you have a mm-hmm. parachurch running a church. Yeah. And the, when you, people hear parachurch running a church, what does that mean? Just remember, IHOP, the International House of Prayer, is what started. A bunch of people came to the House of Prayer and they realized, oh, we need a school. They started a school. So that group of board members is running the, the House of Prayer in the school. Well, where are all these people going to go to church? Let's start a church. And they started a church. And it's this group of people that's overseeing all of these separate entities and organizations. So effectively, you can have people at the top here making calls for the church that have no membership. I mean, I know people in the ELT today who live in a different state who are on the executive leadership team that oversees the church. Like it. And it's like, oh, that's dude, a whole, that, that's a whole governance structure that, no, thank that you. is like just ripe. Oh, for it's rampant. When, when it's, you have it's all over the arc network, right? Well, when you have a pastor who's like, my accountability is famous apostolic pastor oversight on the, other side of the country yeah. and famous pastor way down there. Like you you guys are just buddies. This isn't accountability. If you want accountability, you got to be like in each other's business every oh, day. You got to be doing but it. Has, it allows yeah. them to maintain the image of accountability without ever actually having any. And that's yeah. what yeah. they do is they have this, I have this apostolic oversight team. One of them lives in Texas. The other one lives in Kansas. They the don't know anything about in, you. No, no, they're not they're up nothing. in your grill on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that. That's that was the, the primary thing that I thought was, oh no, this is not good because you can't. In the same way, I wouldn't want to pipe in a preacher every Sunday in my local church to preach for me because he doesn't know the people, he doesn't know what's going on in their lives, doesn't know how to care for them. I wouldn't want some kind of external elder outside of the church determining what's going on inside of the church or the house of prayer or the school of ministry. So um, it seemed like the tail wagging the dog a little bit. So I think it was worth bringing up parachurch ministries. I think it's worth going through all of these again, historical models, Episcopal, Presbyterian, Congregational. And then within the charismatic movement, uh, there is like the first, second, third wave. So we see the gifts, you know, charismatic churches kind of infiltrating all of those spaces to some capacity. Uh, But many are congregationally run churches. Uh, Many are elder run churches. Many are have a Moses model and then others still have a fivefold ministry. And I think what's going to happen is as days progress, we're going to see more parachurch ministries uh, beginning to start churches um, and making sure that those two things can live separate. Uh, Remnant Radio is not a part of King's Fellowship. It's not being overseen by King's Fellowship or 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 any of our churches 
we're not setting up Remnant that way. We are each members who are accountable to our church. And if anything happens here on this podcast, it gets us out of line individually. We will be disciplined by our church. Um, but parachurch and church need to not be wed together in unholy matrimony. <laughs> so uh, I think keeping those things distinct unholy and separate. Matrimony. <laughs> um, so <laughs> do you like that, Miller? Cool. I let's, did, yeah. uh, let's, uh, let's wrap it. Guys, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Remnant Radio. Uh, lots of really great content. If you're interested in ecclesiology, man, you need to subscribe to the channel. This is not our first video on this. We've done uh, entire videos just dedicated entirely to fivefold ministry, videos dedicated to church membership, videos dedicated to elder run churches, uh, all of the above. Check out the channel. Great stuff here. Subscribe, like, uh, but also make sure to join the newsletter because we have a conference coming up in the fall and we have lots of courses in which we are going to continue to crank out. Uh, we've been doing the Word and Spirit School of Ministry course. That's a 13-week course discipling you in spiritual gifts. Had 165 students subscribed for that in the spring, which is absolutely fantastic. The highest registration we've ever had. Uh, and we plan for that to keep growing uh, in the fall. So super excited. But we also have maybe a few exciting courses that have not been released that we would like to release soon. And if you're the first ones to get on board with some of those other courses, uh, you might get extra discounties. So make sure to subscribe to the newsletter so that you get notified when those discounts go live. Blessings, everybody. We'll see you next Monday from Blessings. 4 to 5 p.m. Central Standard. Uh, do you guys have anything you want to add? No? Closing no, thoughts, closing thoughts? Good episode. Great. want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.